welcome to The Laws of Style, featuring conversations on creativity, fashion, and the law from the leading edge of our economy and culture, hosted by noted fashion lawyer, Douglas Hand. For this episode, I'm joined by artist and designer, Walt Cassidy. Throughout the 90s, you were at the center of uh, the New York City club kit scene. It was kind of like being, it's like the old Hollywood studio system. So describe your line for us and and how that's evolved over time. I never approached it like, okay, we're going to do bracelets with stones and this is really hot right now and this is what the kids want. Creativity is like blood. It should always be moving and flowing. Hello, and welcome to the podcast, The Laws of Style, downloading to you from the offices of the law firm HBA, high above Brian Park, in the Fashion District of New York City. I'm your host, Douglas Hand, fashion lawyer, fashion law professor, and self-styled, well-dressed man. For this episode, I'm joined by artist and designer, Walt Cassidy. Walt, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. So... Your formal education uh, as an artist and a designer was at the School of Visual Arts here mm-hmm. in New York. Um, but throughout the 90s, you were at the center of uh, the New York City club kit scene. And uh, that was an artistic and fashion conscious movement, um, which was somewhat subversive and uh, highly <laughs> colorful. Mm-hmm. Um you know, they were really a definitive force in New York City, not just nightlife, but uh, I think, you know, in terms of artistic and fashion uh, commentary and, and influence. Um, you know, uh, during that time, I was actually in law school. So um, while our paths may not have crossed oh, yeah, uh, during late evenings, I was probably in the library. Okay. Um, but uh, <laughs> you were known at the time as wallpaper. Mm-hmm. Um, and you had, to say the least, a, 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 a look mm. which uh, was, was unique and, you know, highly personally curated. Um, describe your process for developing that persona and how it related to fashion. Well, you know, I have to say that I wouldn't say it was a curated persona, Um I think when you're dealing with identity and expression through identity, there's different ways to approach it. You know, I sort of see there's two main ways coming at it from the outside going in and then coming from the inside going out. So I, I think when you deal with that type of expression as a persona and as something that's curated, you're sort of setting it up as you're arriving at something from the outside and creating it. I I always felt that what I was doing and what I still do today is sort of exists inside of myself. There's a sort of interior landscape that I'm operating from and I'm projecting out. And so everything that I address from that standpoint becomes a reflection of my interior experience. And I think that kind of came from my childhood. You know, I I had a very dysfunctional family, um, and I think from a very early age, I retreated inside of myself. I sort of thought that I could find freedom in that. And once I found that position, that sort of very secure position as a child, Mm -hmm. everything that I put out became a reflection of that. So this character, if you will, of Walt Paper was basically 
you know, by that point I was 19 years old Mm -hmm. and I was really just putting a name on top of something that already existed inside of me. And that, that existence was moving through space and finding different scenes to, you know, explore. Mm -hmm. But the focal point was always from inside. You know, it was never like another example would be say like David Bowie. Mm -hmm. He's someone who, um, approached creating a character almost from an academic standpoint. You know, he took this rag bag of ideas and put them together and created this skin and then tried to sort of make sense of it, Mm -hmm. which is a really valid and interesting approach. Yeah. But that wasn't my approach. You know, my approach was probably, you know, was about living inside of myself. And I, I, you know, I, that wasn't strategic, you know, it wasn't like I was five years old and said, Oh, this is a very good trajectory. And, exactly. you know, I'll map my whole career around this idea. Let me meet with Mr. Gation and yeah. figure out if this fits his, uh, yeah. cast of characters. I just, you know, I found my place inside of myself. And then as I moved through life at different ages, I came in contact with different groups of people and different experiences. When I was 15, it was punk rock, you know, and I think I was always, trying to find a family that I didn't have at home. Mm-hmm. So I would I would try to find those families in different scenes. And at first, my first experience with that was with the punk scene. And by the time I got to New York and I was 19 years old, it became the club kids. Right. The punk scene had certainly begun to peter out by the late 80s and uh, early 90s. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I sort of had... Uh, I had left um, the punk scene and I went to Kent State University for a brief moment and I had a double major in African studies and painting. Wow. Again, you know, I I was intuitively pursuing information about tribal culture and group culture and group politics um, to kind of replace this lack of family. And um, so when I arrived to New York and found myself in the middle of the club kids, um, you know, all of that informed my identity, you know, and my posture within that group and and what I brought to that group. Um, And that was a really interesting time and a really interesting experience. Um, It was kind of like being... It's like the old Hollywood studio system. That's how New York nightlife at that time was. Mm-hmm. You know, once you were sort of plucked and brought into that system, there was all this machinery in place to push your ideas forward and push your identity forward. There was PR people. Mm-hmm. You know, these were massive clubs. You know, it's like I think anyone that was not around at that time probably can't even comprehend the scale. Right. Um, and the fact that there were so many of them, that it was almost like an empire. Yeah. So it was like the studio system, you know, and um, as a 19-year-old artist coming into that framework, you know, I came to New York with ideas about Keith Haring and Jean-Michel Basquiat and Robert Maplethorpe, and those were the people that I really looked up to. And so I came here and got plucked into the system and the first nightclub that I worked at was called The Building, mm-hmm. which was run by Howard Schaefer, who went on to do Bowery Bar and yeah. The Standard and all that stuff. Um, and they gave me like a studio in the attic of the club, you know, to do 
I was doing decor for interiors. That was my first club job. Right, right. And so I you mean, must have felt like you oh my God, it was 19, arrived. Yeah, I was 19 years old. I was just starting at School of Visual Arts where everyone's sort of training to be an artist. And all of a sudden, I have my own studio in like the hottest club in New York. I was like, what do I need to be going to SVA for? You know what I mean? It's yeah. like, I've, I've made it. This is it. Right. And um, it was very exciting. You know? So how to, to get to the tail end of the question, you know, that, uh, that, that self-expression, mm. how within that infrastructure, either of, of nightlife mm. or more broadly, just your, your own, and, and I hate this term, but I will use it, mm. personal brand, mm-hmm. Did it relate to fashion and your view of, of fashion and what it is as an industry? Yeah, well, I think what changed for me going from punk into the club kids is that I became aware of this conceptually that my identity was and could be a brand. This, you know, I had never heard that language prior. You know, I had never thought about it. And I remember going up into the offices of Limelight very early on. And there, you know, just the fact that there were offices and publications and PR people. Were they in the bell tower? I just have this image of... Uh... I, you know, the <laughs> for, they were up okay. top in the back part of the club. Okay. Um, was all offices. And, you know, there were assistants and fax machines. And, and you know, I was like, wow, this is like really, really professional. You right. know, it's like, and I liked it. I liked the organization of it and I like the staging aspect of it and I felt really inspired and sort of ready for that mm-hmm. and the people that I started talking to it was that was sort of run by a group of club kids that were a little bit older they had sort of come over from the late 80s and those people had found themselves in more administrative type positions like one person ran the magazine, which was Project X. Uh-huh. Um, you know, one person ran the events. And um, I was like, wow, this is really interesting. All this stuff I've been feeling and doing intuitively on my own um, can now be put out almost uh, as an artwork in mm-hmm. itself. And I started to realize that my identity and the way that I dressed and the things, the expressions that I had that it was something unto itself, mm-hmm. you know, um, and that, that was something, you know, I, I could pursue. And this idea of self-branding, you know, a lot of the topics that are really commonplace now, the gender revolution, influencers, self-branding, a lot of those seeds were kind of planted with the club kids. Um, especially, you know, we didn't have internet at that time, but right. we would go on television shows like mm-hmm. Joan Rivers, Geraldo, Jane Whitney, right. you know, all of them. There's a whole, that's how people got information at that. That was the internet of that time was TV yeah. talk shows. Yeah. And so we would go on these talk shows and be like, Hey, you're miserable in the Midwest. Come to New York and right. join us, you know, and dress up and explore gender and all of these different things the you clarion know? call for creatives and self-expression Absolutely. which you know a lot of people a lot of you know many new yorkers most new yorkers mm. aren't from new york born right. and raised you know that's right. a rarity when you see someone who has been here you know sort of bookend to bookend absolutely yeah well you've you've always been recognized for your physicality mm. um you know both um, as wallpaper mm-hmm. and 
if I may be so bold in your current iteration, mm-hmm. you know, um, which is still the same. Yeah. I no, mean, I know it's still, yeah. the, it's, it's a continuing story. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Um, but, but the optics of your look mm. from, from the viewer's perspective yeah. have, have obviously changed. Sure. I mean, going back to wallpaper days, mm-hmm. I saw a lean, almost sexualized feminine version of you yeah. that was mm-hmm. slightly alien as yeah. well. Very sort of gender, gender neutral. Right. Maybe. And today I see a more masculinized, maybe yeah. I think like Viking Earl on mm-hmm. a vacation. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. <laughs> but that may not be what you're putting out, right. you know, but that's what I'm taking Project. in, you know, um, so exactly. <laughs> you can't control that. Right. Um, has the personal brand changed in a way? And is that reflected through appearance or is this just a continuation of one story thread and um, much like Bowie, but again, Mm. building from inward outward, Mm. it's just uh, life. Right. Well, my expression, I always see as being in flux, you know, and whether that's with the objects that I make, whether it's, you know, paintings and illustrations, which is what I did very early on or now doing jewelry and starting to get into garments and stuff like that. Um, my expression has always been fluid, you know, my, and I, I've always dealt with gender in the same way. I've always moved, felt comfortable moving all over the place. You know, I was never someone who wanted to find a rigid category and then place myself in that category. You know, I've always believed that, we are designed to be fluid and moving and i think any you know creativity is like blood it should always be moving and flowing whenever it starts to coagulate and clot it becomes problematic Mm -hmm. Um, and i think the way i approach my life and my expression is i always try to keep it flowing and whenever people or groups or things start to coagulate around an idea that's an immediate sign for me to move on. So as soon as I created this expression of wallpaper and articulated it, when it became a thing that I could identify as a thing, my first instinct was to destroy it and create something new. Mm-hmm. And that's just how I, that's just how I'm wired, you know, from childhood. Um, and I think that's what defines me as an artist is that I feel that lust, that, anxiety to destroy the things that I create as a sort of cyclical thing. It's almost like an agrarian thing where you plant something, you harvest it, it breaks apart, it falls into the ground and creates seed for something new. And that's how I've always approached the way that I look, the objects that I make, the way I live my life is always keeping the cycle flowing. And so the fact that, you know, I'm 45 years old and I found expression in a sort of very physical, classically masculine identity, you know, the beard, uh, a body that's got a little bit more volume. To me, it's just a classical arc. If you look at um, any kind of history, you see this journey of the boy to the man, the sort of androgynous boyhood going into manhood. So to me, it's it feels right in line with that. So mm-hmm. it, it makes sense that I started off life and I was very gender fluid. And then as I matured, I became more interested and more comfortable in a more classically masculine articulation. 
-hmm. But I also was aware that it was an interesting response to what I had already established my identity as. Right. And that's just the mindset of an artist. It's like you become your own context. And then once you have that, you're always responding to that. That's that's your center point. That's your interior mm-hmm. as an artist. But everything that I approach is as an artist. Again, coming from the inside and moving out. Yeah. Well, so your your artwork mm. and perhaps your your body centric aesthetic, mm. if 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 I can put that label on it, mm. um, and your penchant for useful objects mm. led you to jewelry design. Mm-hmm. Um, so describe your line for us and, and how that's evolved over time and directionally where, where you're taking it. Sure. Well, it, it sort of, as everything in my life has happened, it just sort of, I intuitively came to it. There was no master plan. I didn't sit down and go, okay, you know, I think it would be a really good idea to start a jewelry line. You know, I was uh, the format I was operating in um, was the art world for a long time after the club scene um, crumbled and that whole thing blew out. I kind of retreated into the art world because it was a much more quiet and it felt safer. And so I was involved with galleries and I was just, I placed myself within the art world. Um, and then through that, I started doing exhibitions. Um, and exhibitions are paced at a very specific pace. Like for me, I was doing exhibitions every two years. So I'd work for two years making sculptures and objects, exhibit them, you know, in two years. And then it would sit in the gallery or go on museum tours or whatever would happen. And I was really frustrated with the pace of the art world. Mm-hmm. And also I had been in it for a while and I just started to get like itchy, you know, and I was like, I need it's a to big downshift in gears from the club scene. Yeah, absolutely. Monastic. And I, for a time period, I needed that. Yeah. I really needed that. Um, but then, you know, everything, it's like a clock. It goes around and around. And so it came full circle. And I was like, you know, I I need to change the tempo, you know. And this was also sort of in the early days of Instagram. And, you know, I was like, you know what? I just, I just want to make something every day, pop it online, and get that immediate response. Mm-hmm. So, it, And also, I was working in sculpture, and my sculptures were very decorative and kind of design oriented and my art dealers at the time were very nervous about that they were always trying to steer my work back to the conceptual and away from anything decorative and Mm -hmm. so me being very rebellious you know and sort of contrarian in nature I was like, oh, you don't like the decorative elements. I'll make them more decorative. You know, <laughs> oh, you don't like that. Well, why don't I go ahead and do jewelry? You right. know, then that's really yeah. going to throw you. Um, and I just started doing it. And it was a way of testing materials on a small scale. So it was less of a commitment than doing a big sculpture that took six months to do. Right. I could do a bracelet in a day or two days or whatever and just figure it out pop it online and get a response and it created this tempo and this rhythm Mm -hmm. and energy exchange that I was really hungry for. Somehow those pictures on Instagram ended up at Vogue, you know, and uh, Mark Holgate saw them and they called me into Vogue and they wanted to see my jewelry and I was like, Oh, wait, um, I wasn't, (laughs) is Vogue relevant in this industry? Well, you know, I was like, wow, (laughs) Vogue is great, you know, but, there's no plan you know there's 
I'm not really a brand, um, they must be really confused or really wrong. But, you know, being the adventurer that I am, I was like, my friend who is a model, I said, come on, April, we'll just get a bag of drag and go to Vogue and I'll put the jewelry on you and let's just see what happens. You know, I'm sure they're just going to kick us out. And it was quite the opposite. You know, um, I also went there thinking, oh, Vogue is very tough and very stern. And, very, you know, there's all these ideas about Vogue. And when I got there, there was so much warmth. And, you know, I met with Mark and then he called all of these different people into the office. And all of a sudden I was surrounded by people and we had all my jewelry on the table and people were trying it on. And there was all this energy and warmth. And I was just like looking at my friend April, who was and we we're just kind of going, wow, this is incredible. You know, it's, it's amazing. And I was just like, can you guys just be my art dealers? Because you're so much more right. warm. And right. this is, I like this, you know what I mean? I, I, I li like this. And from that point on, they profiled the jewelry and it just kind of took on a life of its own without me ever really planning it or mm -hmm. I never approached it like, okay, we're going to do bracelets with stones and this is really hot right now. And this is what the kids want. And, what what materials were you working with at that time, and has that changed over time based on any commercial realities that you've seen as as the brand has grown? Yeah, that has changed over time, and that's um, when I first started out um, and started thinking about jewelry conceptually. I thought that most people were. I realized when I started looking at jewelry. Um, which even back to the wallpaper days, I was always giving jewelry. I just didn't think about it, you know? So when I looked back, when I started making jewelry, I was like, oh, wait a minute, I did this and I already did that and I did that without even thinking about it. And um, my thing, I, I thought most people created jewelry from a luxury perspective. Right. And that, oh, what what's the piece of jewelry you would make for the person who has everything? You know what I mean? I. I was like, I want to make jewelry for the person who has nothing, for the person that is walking along a path and they see something in the dirt and they pick it up and they hold on to it and it gives them strength. It has some sort of talismanic value. Mm -hmm. And I thought that that's the kind of, that's why I always wore jewelry, you know, as a sort of talismanic gesture, which, which went back to my studies of African studies. I was going to ask it. That, makes sense that that, that loop would be absolutely filled. so that's a very clear line between what i studied and learned about and how that became relevant in my practice and in my branding and the development of jewelry um so at first i was doing a lot of stones because that was you know i would get these stones and wire them together and the the materials were very elemental mm -hmm. and i was also as I went along, I was learning how to make jewelry, how to translate sculptural mechanics into wearable things. So the first pieces that I made were probably more sculptures and there were problems with wearing them, you mm -hmm. know, because it was basically a small sculpture. And, um, and then as I did more, I started considering wearability. And as I got press and certain collaborations came up because after, uh, I was profiled in Vogue. I started getting approached by, you know, big box retail and other designers who wanted to collaborate. And I was just kind of taking it as it came mm -hmm. and just making creative decisions on the spot um, and just hoping for the best. Um, but I think what that process 
helped me bring was a kind of authenticity and an integrity, which is what I think Vogue responded to, Mm -hmm. you know, being them probably being inundated with all kinds of brand concepts and money driven ideas to have someone come in that's purely in the creative and purely operating as an artist and making decisions as an artist and not as a commercial venture yeah was probably refreshing you yeah. know um i'm sure and and they profile from time to time you know people with with similar backgrounds that aren't building lifestyle empires right 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 um which that's okay too you know exactly what I mean? it's just a it's very like there's different... enough room for everybody i really believe right. that right but right. i do think um you know the 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 folks at vogue and, and condé nast in general are um highly attuned and i think drawn to those stories that that do have an artistic bent as opposed to a purely commercial one right um because those are just the more interesting stories sure yeah. Sure. Um, yeah. So uh, I'll ask, I know the answer, but were you designing for women or men or was that a fluid concept as you, as you comprised? Well, it was fluid designing? because, you know, I'm, I'm very selfish in what I do and in that I do everything for myself on myself and being that I see myself as fluid, even though people perceive me, they sort of see these hallmarks of masculinity it's like oh you're six three you're 220 pounds you got a beard you got a deep voice you got tattoos yeah, man but you know inside of <laughs> great the, podcast voices yeah right. inside of this shell is still that inner this that very gender neutral little gothy you know character it's also inside of me and they're working together um but because the jewelry that i made i would make it for myself and then i would adjust it to the people who were interested in it you know i would size it or resize it or deal with that deal with those situations as they arrived and i also the thing too about what i was doing is i never and still don't deal with the people who invest in my work as shoppers i treat them as collectors which okay. is more me operating within an art world vernacular mm-hmm. but i think that that when you approach the people that come to your work and invest in your work you can treat them as a shopper or you can treat them as a collector and they're two very different perspectives yeah shoppers expect sales right collectors right. don't right <laughs> well there's also a detachment from sh- shopping versus collecting there um there's a there's a lack of intimacy you know a shopper it, that is an idea that's based on efficiency and transactional and acquisitions relationship. And, yeah. Collecting, you know, collect a collector and an artist relationship is very intimate in that the two parties share this object and they both mutually live inside of this object that you've created. And to me, it's one of the most tender and intimate relationships that they are. Um, and that's, that's very exciting for me. But, you know, I'm always trying to temper that with the reality that I have created a jewelry brand and um, and I'm sort of operating within that at the same time, but I'm trying to bring to it the integrity that I feel that I have with all of my work. Um, and with the gender neutral unisex type of approach, um, I think we've just arrived at that point in time where the general public is understanding 
that fluidity or they're starting to understand there's a lot more hints to it that this idea of fluidity and individuality is really what we are in our pure sense you know i don't think anyone no matter how they're perceived we all have we all operate within a fluid gender spectrum and at times we find ourselves at different parts different points on that spectrum um, and that's naturally how we are as human animals. Mm-hmm. Um, and also this idea that people can move through the world as an individual and less aligned to a group. Again, going back to this idea of, you know, a group is when something coagulates around an idea. It sort of starts to smother it in my mind. Mm-hmm. So the goal is always to bring the energy back to an individual stance. And I think that people are, more and more people are intuitively understanding what that's about. It's like when you look at, you know, the gender revolution that's happening now and people dealing with trans issues, Mm -hmm. basically what young people are saying is you have to identify me how I say I want to be identified and you have to recognize me as the individual that I am. And if that's inconvenient for you because you've been programmed to all of these boxes, you know, it's too bad. You know, you have to look at me as the individual that I am. And whether you're applying a gender or any other kind of category to that, you know, I think we're reaching a point where that's all breaking apart. Well, and it's interesting because to to bring it to business and, Mm. and commerce, um, you know, the marketplace is responding to that, albeit mm. probably slower than it should. Mm. There are a lot of uh, impediments to, to quick action mm. in, in the traditional marketplace, which is to say we have seen a proliferation of, of gender fluid or unisex apparel design. Mm. Um, but if you walk into a Nordstrom's or a Barney's, I mean, there's no... There's a women's section and there's mm-hmm. a men's section and, right. and buyers, there is no specific buyer for a unisex option. Mm-hmm. There is no specific place in the store mm-hmm. to place that option. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that, that needs to evolve. Obviously brands and, and this is, this has been sort of a creature of our times that, that through social media and online platforms, brands can now sell directly to consumers. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's the conduit through which I think we have seen a lot of these brands succeed Mm. because they don't have to fight against a system that is somewhat stacked against them in terms of, of providing them with the platform to actually engage with consumers. Absolutely. Um, Jewelry as distinct from apparel Mm. um, does enjoy just the the fact that you don't need as much square footage on mm. the floor mm-hmm. to show it. Right. And you often see men's offerings right next to women's, and that's mm. not in the minds of any consumers odd. Right. But, um, you know, just, just uh, ha- how do you feel your brand has been perceived as one that is not designed specifically for men or women? And has that been a problem as you've been approached by buyers or retailers that you sell through? Well, my... Um when I started getting the level of press that I've gotten, um, which is just kind of a fluke, I don't, I don't know how it really happened, but um, um, I do think it happened because I do think there is integrity to what I do. But um, um, I started getting approached by big, big box retailers mm-hmm. and conventional 
retailers and, and large umbrella brands that wanted to carry me as a third-party brand and things like that. And what I, at first I was so flattered and I was like, wow, they, you know, how, wow, do, isn't I, this how do I make it work? Isn't this amazing that yeah. this massive retail outlet or whatever, this big box retail approached me and they want to carry my jewelry. Um, but what I found as I sort of pushed and pulled my way through it was that those, those forums were not right for me. Um, they weren't the right fit. And I started discovering some smaller, more concept store type of outlets and, and formats that were really interesting to me um, because it wasn't like a buyer came and bought X number of pieces and then they, in a way, the big box retail reminded me of the gallery world. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, you create this work and then it just gets lost in the system and it's sort of stuck there in purgatory and it fits a specific role within what they want to offer broadly and it's very rigid and compartmentalized and not that you know like i said there's enough room for everyone there's enough room for that to exist in the world but i don't know that that's really part of my destiny or, or part of my role and i started to meet um young retailers um who were doing small sort of curated concept stores There's one in New York called Maison 10, which Mm -hmm. um, I sell with. And then also in Mexico City, uh, this place called The Feathered. And, you know, they have really intimate contact with the brands that they carry. And they they foster and allow them to move around in very individualistic ways. Um, But again, you know, having that kind of retail experience for me is sort of the same way it's like shoppers versus collectors but you put that into a retail format so you have a concept store format versus a big box retail format you know shoppers you know versus collectors right so the person that goes into a a concept store has more of a collector mentality they they want to be entertained by a specifically curated idea. They want to know a little bit more. They don't want to just go, oh, this is the hot bracelet for that month. Let me go get one and I'll get one for my friend. Mm-hmm. You know, they want to be involved. And there is this, this idea of occupancy. They want to occupy the experience in a certain way. And I like that, you know. And it, it took me a minute. I was thrown at first because I was like, oh, my God, they want to carry my stuff here. And let me let me incorporate and do this and you know become like i tried to do it but the whole time i was like this isn't feeling right to me and and then i was lucky enough to have these other experiences like okay wait this feels right let me go where it's warm Mm -hmm. and this is more aligned with my principles and where i happen to be at right now and i'm also a very small company with a lot of really good press you know and so people perceive me as being like I've got this massive factory and you know it's just not like that I'm still operating as a as an artist you know and um so I found a really good fit so I'm in a great spot right now it's interesting as well how your relationship with the consumer how one's relationship with the consumer does relate to design Mm. and and back to your sort of inward out Mm. ethos both with respect to personal expression and design Mm. That fits nicely with not caring what the retailer says about what your product should be right. as opposed to an outward in design process, which is 
what are consumers buying? Right. What is your gap right. retailer in in on the floor? And I will Absolutely. fill it because I want to right. make money. Right. And I want to appeal to shoppers. Yeah. And that's what it is. You know, you're you're it's a commerce driven approach, you know, um, as opposed to a creative driven approach. And um, and you know, for me it's just you know, it's just the way I'm wired. You know, there's again, there's enough room for everybody, you know. Um, so what what other brands, not to interrupt, mm -hmm. but what other brands resonate for you, whether in jewelry or apparel? And I know you've you've dabbled in apparel, um, and, and we will touch on that. Yeah. But, but what brands resonate for you personally? Um, hmm. Well, right now, the brand, and this is only just because I just read the article about Birkenstock versus okay. Supreme. Did you read that? No, I haven't. Oh, well, you know, the guy from Birkenstock basically dissed Supreme and was like, oh, working with Supreme is like prostitution. I would never do that. Like, um, and his, his idea, you know, Birkenstock is like a family-owned right. business. Right. You know, Mr. Birkenstock, who's like 85 years old, you know, um, and I'm all just learning, learned this from reading the article. I think it was on The Cut. And, okay. um, and he basically was like, no, you know, I don't want to collaborate with Supreme. You know, I don't want Birkenstock. You know, it's like kind of selling out in a weird way. Um, and, you know, I thought that was really interesting. I was like, all right, you know, <laughs> point there. And uh, I noticed was, you have what appear to be Tevas on, though. Yeah. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, we'll, we'll get into what you're wearing. Uh, yeah, but. yeah. Um, these are Camper. I really like Camper. Okay. Um, uh, I sort of fell into paying attention to that brand maybe like two summers ago okay um and i don't know for whatever reason i was like oh okay i can get down with those because i didn't want to do like a birkenstock sandal because that was so much of, you know birkenstock was originally carried in like health food stores and right. was like really crunchy really no cow crunchy yeah yeah sort of so i already had the birkenstock experience when i was like very political i was like a political punk so I had that granola kind of vibe and um but th that kind of language that sort of I always like I'm drawn to um contrarian approaches I mm -hmm. like when um someone sees that there's a system that exists or a box that exists and their agenda is to break that apart you know and so that gesture wherever it leads is is always interesting to me and also, I really like, there's a woman, I can't remember her name, speaking of sandals, um, she's a really famous woman. She had a tiny little shop on like 4th Street downtown. Okay. And she makes sandals and belts since like the 60s. I don't know if she's still there, but I remember reading an interview with her and I thought that was very, I thought what she was doing was very charming and um, had a lot of integrity. I I like small sort of family based again it's i think you know i'm always yearning for the family the idea of family because i didn't have it growing up yeah. so even in my business practices and in my approach to branding there's still that sort of child inside of me that's seeking to create a family you know and yeah. and when i look at a brand like birkenstock which is a family brand or even Brand, so like Tiffany's, which is a huge 
massive thing but it originally started out as a family brand it's like okay the brother's gonna make the lamps and then make the jewelry the european houses the strongest ones yeah i mean gucci is a family business absolutely most of those strong legacy houses started as as and and are still owned uh, whether it's partially or still outright by by the family right obviously some of them have taken a more consumer facing approach sure, and, sure. and and that makes sense for for certain families yeah other families may view their legacy as one of i i actually want my children not to be um drafting disclosure statements for the next you know debt mm. offering mm. um and still focused on leather work or yeah. jewelry uh and neither of those is wrong right yeah. but you know this, this idea that um you you can't grow and maintain integrity at the same time, I think is a little absurd. I think if if you are, you and yourself as an artist creating things or as a designer creating things, if your frequency is tuned correctly, every project that you approach, no matter how small or big commercial or non-commercial it is, as long as you stay true to that inner frequency, you're going to bring that integrity to that. So, you know, it is possible to do very broad, accessible projects, you know, and design and still bring that integrity with it. You know, as, as a creative person and as an artist, you're always just making creative decisions as you go along. So if you have your center and you're, you're presented with a very big, you know, broad commercial project, as long as you maintain your center within that, you're always going to be making decisions based on that integrity. And that integrity is going to bleed into the project. Scale is, it doesn't really matter. You know what I mean? We've been conditioned to think, you know, scale and commerciality, they're all kind of like the same thing. It's not what you do, it's the way that you do it, basically. So we've talked about your sandals, um, mm-hmm. but uh, on to our, our four W questions, which uh, for the folks that aren't watching on YouTube um, is, is a constant feature of the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, the first W being, what are you wearing? Um, and then we'll proceed to, to who is it designed by, what season, the when, what season is it from, and why are you wearing it? So oh I'll let you tackle all four of those at once because you have a fairly a fairly modest amount of apparel on right now. Yes. Yeah, I mean, this is a lot for me. You know, I'd rather be <laughs> naked with some jewelry. You know, right. Going back, you know, my tribal approach. Um, all the jewelry is Walt Cassidy Studio. You can't really see the earrings. No, but, but I dig that. The, it's a sword through your it's ear. It's a dagger. Yeah. Okay. So, um, those are really interesting. Those are new earrings. How can one tell the difference between a sword and a dagger? Size. Size. You know, um, proportion. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just meant in, in that, is there a handle size? A dagger is a one handed. Well, I think a, a, a sword blade size in relation to the handle. Okay. Uh, different, like a dagger is shorter. Dagger is sort of like in between a knife and a sword. Right. So, um, these are daggers and they're the idea I was remembering, there's an alphabet of daggers, which is an occult alphabet that I first learned about. Um, there's a book, I think it's called sex and rockets. It was written about Jack Parsons, who is the guy who created rocket fuel that took us to the moon. Yeah. And he was a big follower of Aleister Crowley. 
and they used to communicate um, in this coded alphabet of daggers. I gotta and get my hands on that. It's wow. beautiful. It's yeah. a beautiful alphabet, and um, that must be on every tattoo parlor's. Uh, yeah, you can find it. I yeah. mean, you know, I don't. I haven't seen a lot of it. I remember in the like around two thousand. Um, I used to run around with a singer guy named Rufus Wainwright, and um, I remember I made some T-shirts for him, just sort of like a limited edition, just like twenty or thirty T-shirts, and I spelled his name in this alphabet of daggers, so you couldn't read it. So the right. record company was like, uh, "We don't get it," and um, but you know, whoever has those shirts, I I think I still have one. Um, and I was remembering that alphabet, um, and I was trying to think of a new stud, you know. And with my earrings, a lot of people have said, oh, you know, formally when you think of earrings, like most men have a hesitance to wear anything that drops or dangles. Mm -hmm. You know, that's sort of perceived as feminine. And so I've had a lot of guys come to me and say, thank you for creating like a masculine dangling yeah, earring yeah. and um and also you know formally i'm always trying to go okay well let's let's do a stud let's do a what's our take on a hoop you know i like tradition you know i i'm not i don't really see myself as like an avant-garde person even though i'm put in that box sometimes i i'm more of a traditionalist you know i like tradition again I'm always searching for that family effect. And so I think in terms of like, okay, how can we do an interesting hoop and do an interesting stud? And I still do more statement-y stuff that's for editorial. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's like people look at the magazines, but then they go and buy a silver chain. You know what I mean? So you have this big colorful piece in Vogue. Right. And then people go, wow, that's great. I'll buy the little tiny chain. You know what I mean? So the work operates. But anyway, the earrings are mine. The ring is mine. Um, the pants, the jeans are mine. I sort of started um, exploring fiber okay. and garments. Fiber in the jewelry and also fiber in terms of garments. So I'm flirting with the idea of doing, you know, some made-to-order garments. That's and, how I and, do. And what is the denim? What What's the denim? Where did it come from and, and how did you discover it? Oh, you know, I just got it at a, a denim supply it's not there's you know i didn't go to some it's not it's, some uh, no i'm not is it japanese not, wash no, uh, no 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 it's not there yeah um i basically wanted to start out with the heaviest denim that i could okay. find and and this is really problematic for people making like normal production people because it requires specific needles and it's yeah. such a heavyweight denim but i thought that was kind of the ultimate challenge let's start with the heaviest mm-hmm and I also did some in Cotton Duck. And so that was the other end of the spectrum. So now I'm going to sort of play around in between. Um, and in the process, everything I do is made to order. So it's not like, you know, and I'm working with people who already collect my jewelry. And it's like, hey, I, I want to make some pants, you know. Mm -hmm. And I, again, it was, I made them from a very selfish, I have big legs from squatting. You know, I have a sort of working class athletic like construction worker's body now. But I have big legs and a big butt from squatting. And so it's I've never been able to find jeans that fit and the crotch always busts out. And mm -hmm. I'm not into stretch jeans and I'm not into baggy jeans. So I was just finally, I was like, I just have to do it myself. Right. Like the only way I'm going to be happy. And I think you get to that point 
when you start making things, you realize, wait a minute, I don't have to go out and buy it. I can make it myself. And I was like, I have to make a pair of pants that fit my legs and fit my body. And, you know, trying to find jeans that aren't made for like a 12 year old boy is impossible. Jeans made for men's bodies. You get into like workwear and those sort of workwear brands, which is fine. You know, that has a very specific vernacular attached to it as well, that you're in like workwear land. So finding a pair of pants that, that navigates in between all of those rigid spaces, like finding a space away from the denim, you know, vernacular and then the workwear vernacular. So I wanted to find a space in between and create a pattern where I can make these pants in different fabrics and, and they could move fluidly through all of that. So I did, you know, now I'm sort of testing them. Okay. So I made them for myself. And I've also got some jewelry collectors who now they want pants. They're like, make me a pair of pants. So I'm going to do the first test ones on them because those are sort of my family. Yeah. And um, I'm going to do a bikini. You know, last summer I did a beach tunic. Okay. Um, basically all the things I need but have trouble finding. Mm-hmm. My goal is to never have to be able to shop for myself ever again. It's just I have a pattern. Oh, I want it in red or I want it you know, for myself. It's, you're like a fashion prepper. Kind of. It's like that movie Pretty in Pink, you know, with Molly Ringwald. Right, right. Yeah, it's just, I yeah. make my own drag. And um, but anyway, so the pants are mine, the sandals are camper, and the jumper is J. Crew, I think. Okay, okay. Well, thank you for that. Uh, um, you know, uh, we, we've gone through, really, your design process. Mm. Um, you started talking about your, your movement into apparel. Mm. Um is that part of a broader movement to creating the Walt Cassidy lifestyle brand, um, even if it is still niche and micro? Or is that just, again, based on on selfishness and, and recognizing that you can do it mm-hmm. and therefore you will? And based on your history, people buy what you make for yourself mm-hmm. because the, the inward out design process yeah. resonates with people. Absolutely. Well, you know. I guess different people, for me, um, I always just, again, keep it focused on myself. Um, as soon as you start making creative decisions but based on any kind of group analysis, I think you run into problems. I think as long as you stay focused on your own individual, if you trust that you really are an artist, you know, and you stay focused on your own curiosities and your own neat formal needs Mm -hmm. which is what my design is based on my curiosity and my personal formal needs i needed a pair of pants i needed a beach tunic i i need a bikini so you know i pursue those things as as they are you know what i mean there's not like a a broad concept and so i'm not really thinking in terms of uh lifestyle brands but i'm okay to just make things and see what happens you know to make objects that have soul and that have integrity and allow whatever happens with those to happen that's what i learned in my experience with jewelry is just show up be present take action you know articulate your creativity or your vision and let the cards fall where they may. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I'm not opposed to growth. I'm not opposed to larger scale um, in production. But right now, I'm I'm really enjoying a kind of made-to-order framework in that it doesn't feel overwhelming to me, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and so I feel like I can occupy that space and I can articulate my creativity comfortably in that framework mm-hmm. and just see what happens, you know what I mean? Um, see where it goes. For me, I I have to live inside of the experience, you know? So even... And also, I don't even really see it as an artist. I don't see it as me, like a garment industry. Like I'm going into the garment industry. To me, it's formally, it's about fiber. Like I see it as an exploration of fiber. Fiber. So even the jewelry, a lot of the jewelry that I make that's really popular with editorial, I used a lot of colored vinyl and also a lot of plastics in that work. The work that got a lot of press. Um, so somewhere I was carrying a bit of guilt about that in terms of sustainability. So I I decided that I wanted to try to pursue making jewelry that could cut through on an editorial level, level, which is color and volume. Mm -hmm. That's what editors like. That's what works in magazines. So I wanted to keep satisfying my editors and giving them that quality of work, but could I do it with sustainable materials? So even switching from, you know, nylon coated wires to string beads on to 100% cotton fiber creating. I'm actually getting into braiding, hand braiding cords and stuff like that. And it's all 100% cotton and cutting a lot of the pieces out of wood and exploring painting and staining. Mm-hmm. So I'm hoping, I don't know where that's going to lead, but that's also tied to my interest in garments. And, and, and the connecting point is fiber. You know, as an artist, I'm interested in the material of fiber and it's unfamiliar to me. So that's what's exciting to me. I love to try to do something I don't know how to do. Once I know how to do it and I understand it as a thing, my instinct is always destroy to destroy it, it you know, <laughs> sacrifice it. That's that's yeah. where the new life comes from. Yeah. So but it is a journey. And right now my journey has me on this fiber path. And it's like I've had to teach myself how to braid and you know, learn a little bit about sewing and patterns and, you know, it's trial and error. And I like that. I like fumbling through life without a plan. So fairly hackneyed question, but Mm -hmm. to you, what is the difference between fashion and style? Mm. Um, The difference between fashion and style it's probably that same dichotomy of, um, uh, you know, what did we establish earlier? Um, it's basically commerce. The difference is commerce, you know, I think between fashion and style, you know, and also it is that dichotomy of approaching something from the outside going in or the inside going out. Mm-hmm. I think style is something that does come from the inside and moves outward. Mm-hmm. You know, it's that sort of foundation and that platform from which, all things are articulated fashion is more of a skin you know and i think that's something that is framed from the vantage point of being outside of it yeah maybe the same between art and design yeah in a way absolutely yeah. sure um, well i mean because you know it's also i mean the difference between art and design is f- functionality you know you're dealing with a yeah. functional object versus a non-functional object that's kind of put into this precious 
space. Yeah. Um, well, and you and I are speaking on a panel October 5th down at the Salmon Gundy Club, yeah. which will be uh, a ton of fun. We'll cover some of those topics okay. with some other designers. Yeah. Um, and I'll put in the, uh, the, the YouTube and the iPod at the end uh, where, you can, where you can register for that, although I think all the tickets have just about been sold. Oh, yeah? Yeah, which, mm. is, which is good. I like um, a sellout crowd. Yeah, exactly. So back to Club Kid days. Mm. And, um, you know, we, we seem to be, uh, obviously, that was youth influencing to a great degree uh, fashion and design. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're, we're in somewhat of a similar youth cultural movement, it seems, mm. today with a lot of brands uh, celebrating street or urban. I hate these terms as adjectives, mm. but, um, mm-hmm. you know, basically supreme with a billion dollar valuation. Someone right. speaks to that. Um, also storied brands like Gucci uh, implementing elements that are somewhat cartoonish um, mm-hmm. or uh, uh, elements of uh, street art mm-hmm. uh, in, in current fashion. Do you think that the, the, the club culture informed that? Or do you think that um, you know, this is kind of a new, fresh perspective on youth in design? Mm, yeah, I think that it informed it. I mean, you know, it's evident in the references. I mean... I've seen magazine editorials that completely copied like club kid pictures of me. You know what I mean? You know, like in purple magazine, there was a spread and it was literally like a complete copy of one of my early looks, which is fine. I mean, you know that it's out there for people. I'm, I'm happy for that. I think that, um, a lot of the stuff that we were addressing as club kids, again, going back to, intuitively you know um has now become commodified the reality is that queer culture um, gender you know street culture everything has become commodified because we're in this vacuum of content like all of these sort of structures and forums that we're dealing with now they're basically like content vacuums you know and they just like pulling up content i mean now we're in a space where an idea can't even really fully mature before it's sucked up and commodified Mm -hmm. you know and so i think culturally and in terms of creative expression we're getting ideas when they're very thin like they haven't matured enough to thicken up and um so a lot of the information that we're getting visually through editorials, through youth culture, it's thin. You know, it doesn't have the substance that now, looking back at the time period when I was young and 19 and and on the street and in the clubs, um, you know, I had time for my ideas to mature and gain weight and f- settle, you know what I mean? Now it's like everything is pumped out so quickly that there is this aspect of that it's disposable. Yeah, interesting. You know? and, and you're obviously speaking to the to the breadth of of media power sure. in social media feeds yeah. and influencer, you know, with with multiple millions of followers. Mm. Um, do you look at your feeds in that way and exercise some restraint with respect to what you may post? based on the knowledge that if it's just a 
current thought or the kernel of something that might or might not be relevant to you as an artist or to your line um, that you don't want to put it out there in its, you know, gestational form. Right. Yeah. You know, I mean, my approach to social media is, is probably pretty self-sabotaging um, in <laughs> that um, I, I approach it as an ongoing conversation that I'm having with people. You know, um, I don't think about content that I put uh, about whether it's on brand or on point. I think a lot of the, you know, Instagram kids and influencer kids, again, they're really approaching it from the outside going in. You know, it's like they're creating a skin for something that has no skeletal structure or muscle mass underneath it. So you can destroy it just by blowing on it mm -hmm. you know what i mean um it doesn't have any roots and and that's okay again you know hey you know everybody everybody's in the game you know what i mean like you know good luck to you um but i think that a lot of the things a lot of the expressions and a lot of things that we're seeing and experiencing i think there's a lot of disappointment in the world like people feeling like well okay you know could sort of be entertained by that, you know, but, you know, and this is not to, you know, invest too much in, I think nostalgia is a really slippery slope. I think it's important to continue moving from the present forward. You know, I think nostalgia is really good for books and movies and exhibitions, you know what I mean? But some people get stuck in nostalgia and I'm not that person that's stuck in the nineties, but I can understand um, how it, was configured in a way um you know the 90s was our last experience of analog culture um and i think people romanticize that period and i see that like being referenced so much now um because it, it was pure in a sense you know and because it had this content and breadth that we're not really seeing now um you know, everything is so heavily commodified. Yeah. Everything. You know, even like queer culture, you know, which is something that I come out of, you know, um, I, I, it's different. You know what I mean? The vantage point is completely different and people are approaching it um, as product, you know, and as commodity. And, and it's going to be interesting to see where it goes. You know, yeah. it's like you have to just kind of ride it out and i think that the universe and the world as a gesture of evolution naturally balances itself out whether it's politics or fashion or you know there is this natural order that things get juggled back and forth and you know whatever doesn't have a strong constitution is going to break apart and fall away um i don't know what's going to happen with the influencer culture um i feel that my just my sense of operating in the world is i feel like it's kind of falling you know what i mean the transparency of it is yeah. sort of dissipating yeah. so within our sort of bubble of new york and circles of creators we've already kind of moving forward so that fodder is now with like big box companies they're still feeding off of something that's yeah. kind of dead you well, know, too, yeah. like a creative community yeah. it's, it's a regulated mode of, of promotion at this right. point 
Um, well, and also Instagram, as I understand it, is basically moving towards an Amazon format. I mean, I, th- I I've even heard talk that there's going to be direct shopping on mm-hmm. Instagram. That's certainly a better way for them to make money than they've done. To right. Date, and right. It does seem like it's everything's being sort of driven in that direction, even from the point when they started creating the algorithms and start everything was no longer in sequence you know mm-hmm. in time sequence right they started prioritizing posts that was drove me nuts that's that yeah. was to me that was the end of instagram so as a creative person instagram as a format used to really serve me when it was chronological because my content as like a small tiny little creator in new york would get to places like vogue you know now i i don't know that it, it would you know, and mm-hmm. so I think um, its utility as a format um, has changed. And, you know, and the people, you know, once once things get bought and commodified, it's dead. You know what I mean? So somewhere there's other things happening. You yeah. know, and and developing, and that will exist in a space. I'm sure. You know, we're not going to stop hearing about influencers. You know, but I think with inside the creative community, there's a sort of eye roll. You know, when people who work in the, I was just had my hair cut the other day by a friend who was doing a, a shoot, and all the models were like Instagram models. Um, and it was interesting talking, and he was someone who had worked with, you know, re, re, well, real models like back in the day. <laughs> right. You know, right who who developed their careers you know it was like nuts and bolts they sort of worked it out and and built their their career off of that skeletal structure that i'm talking about you build it from the inside out and then you have the skin to finish it off but you've already you have the skeleton inside to support it and um and now these models he said like three girls walked off of set just because the hair that he did was not on point with their self-branding you know what i mean normally like a model's like oh you want to do ugly hair on me i don't care you just send me the check i'll do it you know i'll work it and make it come to life that's my job as a model is to take your vision and bring it to life and that's my responsibility but he was saying that these young women didn't (laughs) they didn't care you know (laughs) what i mean it's like their their commitment was to their own you know, yeah. personal brand. Hard to hard to promote something, you know, as a team or to hire a group to, yeah. to perform a function when you know it's it's kind of a me first, uh, right amalgam. But there is something to that's you know this idea of the individual. Like there is a part of that that I like. Yeah. You know, there's something in the fact that these models were like, oh, this is not on point with my brand. I'm walking. You know what I mean? There's something about that that I like. I don't know that their agenda is really what I'm seeing in that. You know, I'm sort of projecting my own thing into that. Um, But again, you you know, you throw the cards up in the air and you see where they fall. Yeah. And I think the curve of normalcy or, you know, the balance, as as you put it, you know, it it it's it's always at work. Right. So, um, you know, while there are influencers out there who can move the needle for brands with one post, um, you know, maybe the future is is truly micro influencers, sort of not, you know, I mean, just some dad you've been following who, you know, is really into grandpa style and you're just like checking that out and 
you know, it's like a Mordecai Rubenstein. Uh, I don't know if you follow his feed, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. Um, he finds uh, just oddly dressed people in the city who inspire him. And I, I've been inspired right. by some of the images that he puts out there. And these are just guys playing dominoes on the street corner. Right. You know? but, um, and these are also, I mean, there's that other thing of where there's so much content that's curated content. You know, I, I don't follow any of those yeah. accounts i mean i don't follow a whole lot of people because i'm not so invested in it because i do think like instagram is kind of a dead medium at this point as well as facebook um so i don't really care um too much but i also i don't follow people who don't post original content coming from themselves mm-hmm. you know these sort of curated pages of like oh this is hot black guys and this is you know asian girls and these are denim collectors and these are you know puppies that do silly tricks you know that they've gathered from this interweb like you know i i make it a point not to follow you know anything that looks like a tumblr feed if i if i'll go to tumblr for tumblr i don't i don't want tumblr on instagram so i don't i don't like that kind of curated to me it's it's like fast food you know what i mean it's um it's not very nutritious you know so i'm looking for a nutritious experience and and that that means like raw like you eat it within 15 minutes from it being cut from the ground well and ideally you yourself cut it from the ground yeah knowing you absolutely or or, you know hunted it down and speared it yeah i mean i you know i do think you know of it in the sort of agrarian terms you know it's like how nutritious is what we experience you know you can apply it to everything apply it to politics to the food industry to the fashion industry you know at the end of the day as an individual moving through space i'm trying to survive in the healthiest most profound way that i can and in order to do that i have to self-preserve and in doing that as an artist or just as a fleshy body trying to stay healthy Mm -hmm. you know i need that food that's nutritious i need that content that's nutritious i need that fashion and that style and that garment and the fiber and the jewelry i need it all to be nutritious it needs to be inspiring me and keeping me alive and keeping me move forward and so much of the industry around everything food politics creativity design is fast food you know it's like they're it's poisoning people you know it's a very heavy idea but you know lighten that up a little bit yeah that's my truth well awesome let's uh let's go get lunch now because i'm i'm ravenous for uh for wholesome food Mm -hmm. um thanks for coming in and and sharing your thoughts um you can you can follow walt on various feeds that he has walt i'll let you articulate them yeah just google walt cassidy everything comes up i'm easily found you're that guy yeah and you can follow my thoughts on hand of the law uh both instagram and twitter um thanks for listening everybody bye now You've been listening to The Laws of Style with Douglas Hand. For more information, go to our website at www.hballp.com. And you can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at, at Hand of the Law. Thank you for tuning in and stay stylish.